Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. As always, thank you for joining me. A quick disclaimer. On Wednesday of this week, I had some oral surgery. had two teeth removed, including an old wisdom tooth that had never been removed that had somehow maneuvered its way into a position that had perforated the sinus cavity. So if my speech is slurred at all today, that's my excuse. I want to give you some background on how I came to the topic and the document that we're going to discuss today. So a few weeks ago, a friend of mine sent me a document that had something to do with the Camarena case. And this document comes from a CIA website that is essentially a clearinghouse for unclassified, declassified, or redacted and then declassified documents that have been subject to FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests. So this document came to me, and I looked at the Camarena-related stuff on it and thought it was interesting, and then I looked at it in more depth. And it was a fascinating memorandum, but not necessarily for the reasons I initially thought. But it turns out that this memorandum provides a very interesting analysis of comparing the Mexican judicial system, principally the criminal judicial system, with that in the United States. And it's interesting because... It applied back to the days around the Camarena case, and I think it applies to many situations now where people in the United States may not understand the processes and what the criminal justice system is doing and why it takes so long and those sorts of things with respect to drug traffickers, cartel members, and others that are in that system. It also, the memorandum, that is, has one of my favorite lines in any governmental memorandum we'll talk about in just a second. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this analysis, this comparison between the two criminal justice systems. And then at the end, we'll also touch on briefly a couple of interesting notes from the Camarena-related discussion in this memorandum. So the memorandum is from the American Embassy in Mexico City to the Secretary of State's office in Washington, D.C. It's dated September 15, 1986, and it says, in part, What follows is a summary of a study of the Mexican criminal judicial system, which the embassy recently undertook to help clarify the status of the legal proceedings pending against those already under detention in both the Camarena murder case and that of John Walker. Remember, John Walker was murdered at La Langosta. The memorandum continues and says, the study attempts to clear up some of the confusion that has been created by efforts to explain Mexican legal proceedings using U.S. definitions. 
As the study points out, the Mexican trial bears little formal resemblance to its U.S. counterpart. And that's always the case, right? Sometimes we'll say, if you say a trial to people in the United States, we have a certain perception of that. Whether that's Perry Mason or something that you've seen elsewhere or been involved in, but you know, that's the perception in our head. That's not always the case in other jurisdictions, including Mexico. And so when you use the same word, but you mean different things, that leads almost invariably to at least some confusion. Now, here's the line that I love saying that, you know, there's this confusion and they want to point out the differences. The embassy believes that it could be useful for the department to share this information with Congress. In other words, Congress is making statements about the Mexican judicial system and doesn't know what they're talking about, or at least some members are. So that's the concern. The memorandum goes on to say the information provided in this report will help to promote a greater understanding of the differences between the Mexican and U.S. legal system. It also notes, as with any court system that provides for the protection of the rights of the accused, the Mexican system often involves delays that frustrate those seeking speedy resolution of the cases. All right. Biggest difference key difference between the two systems is that U.S. law is based primarily on English common law. Mexican law, on the other hand, is based on the Roman and Napoleonic codes. In criminal matters, there are two key differences. Under U.S. law, the defendant is considered innocent until proven guilty. In Mexico, on the other hand, When law enforcement authorities have accused an individual in a crime, it is the accused who has the burden of proving his innocence. Second big difference is that unlike criminal proceedings in the United States, trial by jury is the exception, not the rule. And, and this is going to be important, the judge plays a much more active role in the prosecution of the case. Now, there are some similarities. United States and Mexico are both federated nations comprised of states that have their own prosecution systems. So under Mexican law, certain crimes, kidnapping, homicide, burglary, are considered the responsibility of the state. Other crimes, drug offenses, Weapons charges are regarded as federal matters and fall under the exclusive jurisdiction of federal courts. In instances where both federal and state offenses have been considered or have been committed, federal courts generally have exclusive jurisdiction over the prosecution of the case. That is not too dissimilar from how it occurs in the United States. As in the United States, a crime committed in Mexico is considered a crime against the state, and it is the government, whether at the state or federal level, that prosecutes. In Mexico, there usually is a formal complaint, a denuncia, that must be filed and charges um, pressed 
by the victim of a crime before the district attorney's office will investigate a crime. However, for certain crimes, homicide, drug offenses, etc., the district attorney is obligated to undertake an investigation whether a complaint has been filed or not. When officials suspect that a crime has been committed, there's an investigation that takes place. The purpose of the investigation is to determine whether the crime has been committed. That is, was there actually a crime? If so, to identify possible suspects and to gather evidence in support of any findings the authorities may make. If the evidence suggests that a crime has been committed, the district attorney turns the case over to the appropriate court for prosecution. I notice the difference there between the two systems. In the event a suspect has been arrested in connection with the crime, a judge has 72 hours from the time the accused is placed at his disposition to either release or issue an order for formal imprisonment of the suspect. A hearing is held to allow the suspect an opportunity to establish his innocence. Here's something very interesting. The suspect is called to testify before the judge and is cross-examined by the district attorney and the counsel for the defense. If, during this hearing, the judge determines that the suspect has not provided sufficient proof to exonerate him or herself, The judge issues an order of imprisonment and initiates procedures to formally arraign the suspect. Once the judge issues an order of imprisonment, the trial has effectively begun. In Mexico, bail generally is not available for persons accused of certain offenses carrying an average sentence of five years or more of imprisonment. Mexican criminal trial proceedings vary considerably from those in the United States. I read a a really fascinating article about this and and they were talking about how in Mexico there can you'll go into a room and there'll be several desks and there can be several trials going on basically at the same time. It looks more like an office building than uh, a court system. And of course, I should note that this memorandum, you know, is from 1986. There have been some changes, um, but this, the, the basic setup remains the same. And as always, there are exceptions. So if, if there are certain things that are different um, in various prosecutions that people are aware of, don't hold that against this broader analysis. Here's the the key difference in my mind and one that harkens back to the Camarena case and particularly the prosecution of Rafael Caro Quintero. In Mexico, the judge has investigative powers and can demand that further investigations be conducted and more evidence gathered to clarify allegations made 
by either of the disputing parties. That is essentially a trial in Mexico consists of the attorneys for the two opposing sides presenting their arguments to the judge most of the time in writing. The judge generally will try the case based on the briefs presented and without a jury, as we discussed. In Mexico, both in 1985 during the Camarena aftermath, 1986 when this memo was written, and today, this system places considerable pressure on judges while also giving them enormous power. The Mexican trial generally consists of two stages. The period devoted to hearing the case goes first, and then that's followed by the judge's rendering of a verdict and sentence. The law establishes certain time limits for both stages in the trial. In practicality, those... um, Those time limits often are not met and are extended as a result of um, the, the process. One of the things that's very interesting is that at any time during the hearings, either party may appeal certain interim decisions handed down by the judge. Generally speaking, in the United States, with some notable exceptions, but generally speaking, you have your trial and then you have your appeals. In Mexico, it's far more common to have what in the U.S. we would call interlocutory appeals and if at various stages of the proceedings, which, of course, are going to slow down the proceedings tremendously. We're not going to talk too much about the appeal system um, because I don't think that, that that's really important. But one of the things I wanted to touch upon was this idea of judicial power. And I said, or I quoted to say that this places considerable pressure on judges as well as giving them great power. With great power, not only comes great responsibility, Peter Parker, but also comes a unique opportunity for corruption. In the United States, certainly never going to suggest that there aren't corrupt parties in in the, the system, whether today or in the past. But the ability to corrupt a single person who can have a dramatic impact on a trial, on the incarceration of an individual is far more profound in Mexico than it is in the United States. The example I think of is the midnight release of Rafael Caracantero. That is something that would almost never occur in the United States. Not saying it's never happened, but it's the system isn't set up that way. And 
Of course, you know, there's certain protections in the American system that obviously aren't present in the Mexican system. Trial by jury, the right to remain silent, issues with respect to search and seizure. But I think what's important to understand as well is this idea that a trial in Mexico is not the same as a trial in the United States. So when we hear that there is a trial proceeding against whichever person, you know, when, when, it, when he was arrested, you know, there was a trial proceeding started against the video Guzman. The, the context of that is so materially different from the United States system that it almost would be better to consider it a completely separate and different words. You know, if we didn't call it a trial, we wouldn't necessarily have our preconceived notions. I do want to mention something else in the, the Mexican system that is interesting. And it's a, a what's called an amparo process. And I'm going to cite to um, a law review article that came from a lawyer at the firm of Cameron and Hornbostel in Washington, D.C. And I'm going to assume that he's got far more experience in this than I. But he talks about this Amaro process as being the most important judicial mechanism or procedural mechanism in the Mexican legal system. It is an extraordinary recourse in the Mexican justice system with no equivalent in the common law tradition. The word amparo literally means protection, favor, or aid. Amparo relief can be either direct or indirect. Direct relief is started either in the Supreme Court or the appellate courts. Indirect relief is initiated in the district court, but the decision may be appealed to a higher court. Indirect Amparo is generally brought to compel or prevent actions of non-judicial governments or non-judicial government agents, sorry, such as prosecutors, police, or public administrators, though an indirect Amparo may be brought against a judge to challenge an unconstitutional or unlawful act committed apart from the trial, such as the issuance of an arrest warrant. In this regard, for me, it kind of seems like a writ of habeas corpus, um, but the the idea here is that the Mexican system provides a way to challenge an act of authority deemed detrimental to the constitutionally guaranteed rights of a person. And keep in mind, the Mexican system, though different, does have certain guaranteed rights of private parties. And so you can attack it on two grounds, the unconstitutionality of the act itself or the unconstitutionality of the law upon which the act is based. In essence, what it says is it enables an individual to ask for the suspension of any act that threatens a deprivation of life, liberty, deportations, banishment, extradition, as well as other official actions prohibited by the federal constitution. 
Now, why is that important? That goes back to the Camarena case. It goes back to Rafael Caro Quintero. And one of the things that this report mentions is it says the embassy has confirmed earlier newspaper accounts that the defense for Rafael Caro Quintero and others currently in detention in the Camarena murder trial has obtained an amparo from the judge of the second federal district court in Guadalajara on grounds of two unspecified procedural regularities. We understand that the district attorney's office either has or plans to file an appeal against the grantee of the amparo in the, in the interim Further proceedings of the trial have been suspended. Attorney General's office has given assurances that this does not mean, and it says, repeat, does not mean, Carl Quintero will be released as newspaper accounts have reported. Okay. And we all kind of know what happened with that. All right. So that's the differences in the, the system. I want to talk about what this memorandum says with respect to the Camarena case um, in, in fairly short order, but there's a couple of things that I think are interesting to bring up. So again, this is September 15, 1986. The murder was February 7, 1985. So we're a year and a half or so after the, um, the kidnapping and murder of Agent Camarena. The the memorandum here says the district attorney's office of the Republic has informed the assembly. Sorry, one more time. The district attorney's office of the Republic has informed the embassy that approximately 46 individuals have been arrested in connection with the Walker murder of those arrested. Many of those have also been charged in connection with the Camarena murder. The principal suspects are, wait a second, important note. It says, of those arrested, the principal suspects are Rafael Caro Quintero, Francisco Javier Tejada Jaramillo, uh, Ernesta Fonseca Carrillo, Jose Luis Beltran Alvarez, and Luis Gonzalez Antaveros. The main charges against the suspects are drug offenses, kidnapping, premeditated murder, illegal burial, and conspiracy. Now keep those in mind those names in your mind for just a second. The embassy has a section here where it says embassy comment. Although over 100 suspects have been arrested in connection with the Camarena investigation and legal proceedings have been instituted, it should be remembered that several major suspects have yet to be apprehended and prosecuted. Given the numerous charges that have been brought against the accused, lengthy Mexican trial procedures, and various appeals open the defendants if convicted, the embassy does not foresee any resolution of the case in the short or medium term, it then provides a chronology of events in the case. And I want to talk just about a couple of them. 
So February 7, 1985, DE agent Enrique Camarena and pilot Alfredo Zavala abducted in Guadalajara, Jalisco. Remember, remember, just as a note, remember Hector Boreas's book where he says that Alfredo Zavala was kidnapped the day after because Agent Camarena had given him up. Remember that? Remember that nobody else thinks that? That that's not anywhere else that we've ever found? Again, another evidence where that simply is not correct. Okay. Rafael Carcantero departs uh, Guadalajara in an airplane, eventually escaping to Costa Rica on February 9th. The bodies of Camarena and Zavala are found uh, near the El Marino Ranch in in or near Zamora, about 100 miles southeast of Guadalajara on March 5th. March 16, the Federal District Attorney's Office turned over its investigation to the 4th Federal District Criminal Court in Guadalajara for possible prosecution implicating the following suspects. Listen to this list. Victor Manuel Lopez Razon, Raul Lopez Alvarez, Gerardo Torres Lepe, Hector Torres Molineto, Benjamin Lochera Salazar, Jose Guadalupe Villarreal, Juan Rufo Solario Oliva, Rafael Caro Quintero, Ernesto Fonseca, Samuel Wazo, and Jorge Marie Salazar Ortega. And one of the things I want you to keep in mind, please, as you're thinking about this, is the names that aren't mentioned. Then on March 17, the 4th Judicial District judge takes statements from several of these um, defendants or suspects, not including, not including Rafael Caro Quintero, Ernesto Fonseca, El Sammy, okay. or um, this name, Jorge Mario Salazar Ortega. On April 10, there then is an arrest warrant issued for Caro Quintero, Fonseca, El Sammy, and Jorge Mario Salazar Ortega. And then we go on with more of the the actions that have occurred and some discussions. The last thing is, that I want to note is a um, entry for April 12, 1985. Carl Quintero, Fonseca... El Sammy and Salazar Ortega indicted on charges in the abduction murder of agent Camarena and their prosecution is turned over to the fourth federal district judge in Guadalajara. Okay. couple things that are interesting. Again, I said at the beginning, nothing mind blowing, but interesting. Number one 
the name Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo is nowhere to be seen. Now, I understand and I acknowledge that they are talking in large part about the defendants or suspects who have been captured and which they're proceedings against. I do find it interesting, though, that there's no discussion of those suspects that are, you know, that the embassy and law enforcement is hoping to detain soon those that they're looking for, you know, whether that's Felix Gallardo um, or others. So that's number one. Number two, I find it interesting the way in which the names are listed at several times because you get this intermingling of leaders, Caro Quintero, Fonseca, and then some of the 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 more minor players, the the soldiers, the the workers, you know, Manuel Lopez Razon, Torres Lepe, those sorts of, and you get this intermingling, which I find a little bit interesting as well. Again, not earth shattering, right? Not talking, just thinking through the process of these names being printed. What's the, what are the thoughts? Then the last thing that I think is very interesting is this name Jorge Mario Salazar Ortega, right? So he's one of the suspects implicated on March 16th. He's one of the people along with, think of who he's with, Carl Quintero, Fonseca, El Sammy, and then this Salazar Ortega. They're the ones that are indicted on April 10th. And then on April 12th, it's those same four that have everything turned over for their prosecution to the fourth judicial or federal judicial judge in Guadalajara. Why is that interesting, you may say? <clears throat> Somebody out there is going to be able to answer this, I'm sure. But I've looked through almost every database that I have. I've looked through books that I refer to. I've looked through DEA six reports. I've looked through transcripts and I'm having a hard time finding out exactly who he is or why, or more importantly, why he's significant in that context. And there are a couple places that I haven't looked yet. So give me uh, next week. If I find something, I'll let you know, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, my day job is keeping me busy with the largest uh, transaction I've ever worked on in my life. So I haven't been able to look every place, but I find it interesting. So if somebody knows who Jorge Mario Salazar Ortega is, please let me know. And if you can, let me know why he is so directly connected with these other three major players, El Sammy, Caro, and Fonseca. All right. Um, that's about as far as my mouth is going to get us today. And I mean that as far as the surgery, not uh, not my speaking skills. I hope this was interesting. I hope it was helpful. 
my law firm just hired two different people out of our San Diego office who have vast experience in the Mexican criminal system, hoping to get one of them on to talk about a few things related to what we discussed today in the very near future. Have a couple of other guests scheduled in the next few weeks. So that'll be nice for you. You won't have to listen to me the whole time. And that is Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena for today. I'll be back next week feeling a whole lot better. Have a great week, everybody, and thank you for joining me.